Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Professor Karim Saad is a professor of archaeology at the University of Witwatersrand. And um, they uh, wrote a paper on the lost African city that was recreated with laser technology, said to be dated back to the 1500s. And, um, and they also found some parts of it also dating back to the 1800s. It's all very, very complicated but exciting nonetheless. It is the capital of what they're calling Quening in the Witz area. Professor Saad, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Pimelo, and thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you and your listeners. So w- what we call um, these SWSs, these stone walled cities um, and stone walled structures, um, are not new. But this particular one was discovered when? Um, well, this, uh, just to put you in the picture of exactly where it is, it's about 35 kilometers south of central Johannesburg, between, let's say, Heidelberg and Ferenichin mm-hmm. and Johannesburg, roughly there. It's not far away. Okay. And uh, it's uh, called, uh, it's the press or the media that called it the lost city, which is not a, <laughs> not, not a, not a bad, <laughs> not a bad appellation. Uh, but it wasn't really lost. It yeah. wasn't, uh, it, people knew there are ruins there. What they didn't realize is that how big it is and how complicated and that it was a city. So the fact that it was a city was lost, uh, but the ruins are visible to anybody who goes visiting there. But it's not from ground level. It's not clear how big it is because the place is vegetated and most of these things are not very there, visible. There are also a couple of things that make it slightly difficult. And talk to me about that. There is talk of lots of ash heap on top of that particular uh, that particular site. Yeah. Do we know why that is? Well, uh, I have a, in fact, I have a PhD student who's writing her thesis on these ash heaps. Uh, ash heaps are fairly common in, in that period, um, in, let's say, the heights of further to the northwest. Um, the, the thing that makes it special here at, at Quening is that they're so large. They're really enormous. They're the biggest ones that we know of. There are 800 or so. Not all of them are super large, but there are many, many very large ones. Uh, and, uh, well, the student hopefully will eventually tell us why they're so large. Uh, one idea is that they just represent a very long-term occupation, so they've accumulated ash. This is composed of ash from uh, fires. Now, the, because the Heifel doesn't have a lot of trees, I suppose, uh, mostly the fires were made from cattle dung. Mm-hmm. And, and so this ash is the main component, is cattle dung, uh, mixed in with soil and also a lot of... Um, uh, broken pots, animal bones from feasts, from from eating. Uh, so, you know, in modern terms, we might think of it as uh, trash heaps, as rubbish heaps, but that's mm-hmm. entirely entirely wrong. From our conversations with the uh, current Botswana uh, uh, community here in in Johannesburg, it's clear that this cattle dung, this ash, has a lot of magical properties. It's mm. a very potent substance. It's mm. medicinal. It's all kinds of it brings good things to the household so it's very important you'll be keen to know that in fact it was last week we had um, another professor talk to us about the particular type of preservation and 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 definitely didn't call it waste um, mm. and and spoke about how rituals specific rituals will be conducted in this particular heap yes. um, would be maybe a disposal of maybe a late 
child, maybe a maybe a child that didn't make it, or but there would be some very ceremonial kind of purpose for that heap. It wasn't rubbish. It wasn't Absolutely. a rubbish dump. Not at all. Not at all. So these things are are you know they're, they're heaps of ash, which is let's say a very potent substance, in front of these very big stone walled compounds, homesteads, and I think the size of these heaps would have uh, sort of indicated something about the the wealth and the importance of the household, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, given that it's composed of a lot of uh, remains of feasting activities, general social activities that involve making fire. So I'm, I'm sure there's a there's a meaning behind it that eludes mm. us today, uh, but I think the student will be able to bring it out in our thesis. How much do we know about the size of the population? I know that's been contested somewhat. Do we have a sense of how big uh, the mm. population was? Mm, it's very difficult to tell uh, mm. because we don't really have a good handle on how much of this very vast expanse of buildings was occupied at the same time. time. Yeah, yeah. But but if we guess, if we just say, okay, let's just imagine all of it was occupied at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, then we the next uh, obstacle is to figure out well how many people lived at a time in each house <laughs> in each one of those compounds. But we have a very rough ballpark estimate is. Um, let's say between 6,000 and 12,000, and I can't tell you if I'm overestimating yes. or underestimating, uh, but we know of other ones in the north, what is now the Northwest Province that were visited by early European travelers in 200 years ago, and they spoke of towns that had 15,000 people. There's one in Botswana that was supposed to have 80,000 people, so some of them were very, very large. Uh, this one at Koneng, I would guess, wasn't quite that big, but mm. uh, 12,000, 15,000 maybe. Uh, again, there's another PhD student who's working on that one, and I'm eager to see what she finds. So let's talk about the makeup of the society and what mm. do we know about the makeup of this community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know specifically from what we've done at Koneng because we haven't excavated anything. We're just mapping it, yes. looking at it superficially. Uh, but we know, because it's such a recent period, there's a lot of information from early travelers, mm. from missionaries, uh, also oral histories among the Botswana themselves, anthropologists. So we know that these uh, large capitals essentially would have had uh, a king at the top, uh, sometimes a queen even, but uh, generally a king, uh, a royal family, uh, relatives, ministers, all kinds of uh, people who supported the king living around the king in a royal district mm-hmm. within the city. Mm-hmm. And this, this royal district, district would have been called the Hoseng, and it's normally in the center of, of the settlement. And then uh, north and south of that royal district, there would normally be, apparently this was a standard pattern, uh, and uh, uh, two other districts which would have had people who were not directly related to the royal family, let's say, to the, not I the same you. bloodline, yeah. perhaps not the same totem. They might have been uh, coming immigrants from somewhere else. They might mm-hmm. have been refugees. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the early travelers said that uh, to one of these sites that's now near Dithakong in northwest province, um, near, the, near the Northern Cape, uh, said that that city that they visited at the time, 200 years ago, was more cosmopolitan then than London was at the time. Wow. Meaning it was more a multi-ethnic, more different people 
very active places. <laughs> this sounds absolutely fascinating. Listen, call in if you want to hear more, 011-714-2006. We are looking at the city of Gwening, not very far from here, from where we are, around the, the, the Vatisrand area. And uh, we're speaking to Professor Karim Saad, who's a professor of archaeology at the University of the Vitvasatrant, a city dating back to what we believe to be around the 1500s. And we're really digging deep into what exactly lies in there, who was there, and uh, what what kind of a society was it. So if you're curious, 011-714-2006. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. We're looking back into a city, a capital city called Gwening. It's a pre-colonial Botswana city um, that is around the Ferenaching area, not very far from what would have been the Transvaal, I suppose, um, this side of, of the world. And um, it's a city that we think dates back to about the 1500s. It, we, it hasn't been excavated, by the way. So all of this is stuff that's been done technologically. And uh, Professor Karim Saad is a professor of archaeology at the University of Fitz. Prof, how do we know for sure that the community there was Botswana instead of Bandebele for us, for argument's sake? Mm. Uh, this this uh, relates to a lot of other information uh, of this, this type of uh, stone-walled architecture, in which spreads essentially from, uh, it's in the high felt all the way to Lesotho, uh, northward it goes uh, quite far north of Mahalisburg into the northwest province, and in the east it goes into Mpumalanga. Uh, and all of them are architecturally quite similar, so we can think of them as being part of the same architectural tradition. A little different from the kinds of stonewalled uh, towns and cities you get in Zimbabwe, which is a slightly different architectural tradition. Uh, the ones that are here, from the High Falls to the northwest province to Mpumalanga, it matches exactly the historical area where we know that uh, Setswana speakers, the Sutu speakers, uh, and Sepedi speakers were living uh, in pre-colonial times, let's say, from about 1500. Yes, but but you almost given me three categories, and and I'm quite curious because everybody seems to to have consensus on the fact that this is definitely a Botswana city, not a mm. Babedi city, for instance. Yes. Now this this gets into terminological problems, which mm. is interesting uh, in itself, because in fact. Um, uh, Sepedi and Setswana and Sesutu are, are really families of, of from the same language. They're mm. in fact di- dialects of the same language with mm. northern Sutu as well. Uh, they're mutually intelligible. Uh, I mean, some words may be mm. unusual, but if you have a Setswana speaker, they can pretty much understand Sesutu and all that. Mm. So at one point in the past, they were all the same. And this past is not very long ago. We're talking about maybe four or five, six hundred years ago. They were really just one, they were just one entity. And the linguists call it the Sutu-Tswana language group, let's say. So they, they, it's, it's really a combination of uh, northern Sutu, southern Sutu, western Sutu, or Sutu. And then gradually they split, and then when the, when the colonial government, or when the Europeans came, uh, and they started writing all of this thing down and putting it on maps and reports, they referred to the people, they, the Europeans came up basically the Orange, Orange River uh, and the Val River. And uh, the people that were to the north of them, they called the Botswana. The people who were to the south of them, they called the Basutu. And the people who were further out in front of them, they called the Bapedi. So these names got stuck because they were put on maps. And we now think that they were entirely different entities. But in fact, at one time, they were all the same.
Prof, I'm quite startled by something and I need you to help me as an archaeologist too. Maybe I'm a simple mind, so I need you to help me. This is, this is not that long ago, right? So, no. so why is it that the city is buried? Mm. It's, uh, in fact, parts of it are buried. Uh, if, 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 uh, not a, if, if we excavated there, and you mentioned that we haven't excavated, it's true. Mm. My project hasn't excavated, but parts of this city, before we realized it's a city, had been excavated. Three of the stone walled sort of homesteads mm. had been excavated. But you don't have to go very deep down. You know, you just scratch the soil away and you find the foundation of the houses, maybe 10 centimeters of soil. Okay. So it's not buried very deep at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is hiding it isn't soil covering, mm-hmm. it, it's really grass and trees. Oh, I see, I see, and, I see. Yeah, the, the vegetation is, is hiding it, basically. Okay, so, so yeah, because I was trying to understand why why it would be buried instead of just mm. having changed, you know, ha- mm. having a changed landscape. But it sounds a little bit like it's more changed landscape than it is buried deep, That's right. deep down. Yeah, no, some parts of it, I mean, these ash heaps, for example, some of them are two, three meters deep. So there, if you excavated, you would have to go quite deep yes, down. But I, the I houses, the compounds are, are visible on the ground surface. When you, when you go out there, in fact, that's when we go out there for fieldwork, is after there's been a fell fire and the grass is burnt away, then oh. you, can, you can see practically everything. It's wonderful. So, so, Prof, that means after COVID, you're going to take us there? Oh, with pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're going to go there and uh, broadcast from there. And Mamukete yes. is calling us from the northwest. Good afternoon, Mamukete. Good afternoon, Pinelo. It's an interesting topic, very close to my heart, Pinelo. Mm. I say my ancestors, Bahata, eh. came from that area between Hetelberg and Mayaton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I relate well to what the professor is saying yeah. because the similarity, I'm now married to the Batswanas in Kako Magistral. They used to use Niti, like the people here, Niti, Hohaila, Hohesera, Hosila. There was close similarities between the Swanas here in Rustenburg mm-hmm. and the Swanas I grew under that is my 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 grandmother and my mother mm-hmm. and they ate they also ate in uh, as their porridge mm-hmm. uh, in the, that would be before that in yamadele and and in the morning mm-hmm. and my uncle may i mention this uh yes. yeah. my uncle david kuno composed a song yeah. about that that area that is that you, you mentioned that area wow. between Hetelbeck and Mayaton. So I was just adding on uh. what the professor is saying. I'm so pleased, I'm so happy that at least somebody is recognizing that from the Val River up to Dimpopo. In Popo River, it was a Swana area. So, so let me ask you. I mean, it's a sensitive question, but let me ask you. Uh, th- 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 this is they're saying this is early. We can date it back to the early 1800s, 1900s, even. And I, I know that in my own family, I know people who are from the early 1900s who who died recently. Who I know. So, do you have stories back to that time, early 1900s? Mm. Yes, my grandmother used to relate stories uh, relating to to those days because my my grandmother was, by the way, 
was born in 1901. Yep. She was called Madi Rupa. because of the, the war of the Boers and yes. the English then. Yes. And My grandmother was Madi Rupa. So she used to relate stories that related to hacking. And did she talk about leaving the area? Yes, there were uh, place. Most of them uh, went to uh, Alexander. Yeah. Some to Joskov. Yeah. Some to Prospect. Yeah. Some to Everton. Some to Top Location. Yeah. But those but, were the areas that were formed earlier. Okay. Yeah, that's where people were displaced. Okay, Mamukita, thank you so much for that. It's such such uh, insightful information. Thank you very, very much. Mamukita is calling from the Northwest. And I see your voice notes coming through as well. I'm going to take them in a short while. I just have to go to Uzi Lesaku for the latest in headlines at 1.31. Life Happens with Pinelo Modine. That the community there was... Good afternoon, Pinelo. Uh, you speaking to GS Bragebs Mospezim. Uh, you talking about lefasilavo rarona mogolo eh ke mogona ke lefukumetsi pelefo bo ko botata ngwana masa urisa mafola apogole that's our land you talking about uh, it's interesting to hear all this pers- the perspectives coming from the the professor as i'm listening on the radio there's nothing further more that i would say i'm just listening on the radio very interesting lefasilavo nda de mogolo rarona thanks gs mospacing yeah, good afternoon to Pamela and to the listeners of SFM. Um, I just want to confirm with your guest um, about the cities. Uh, seemingly that we know that there's Mapungubwe and there's Great Zimbabwe as well. Um, and there's also evidence uh, uh, that uh, the Portuguese carry with, uh, from the maps that they uh, drawn when they came to Africa, to Southern Africa for the first time and uh, met the native Africans that were here. So I just want to confirm um, if it's true that uh, there were many, many cities scattered around Southern Africa which were all connected uh, in terms of their culture, their governance systems, um, and everything else that uh, could build a society or that can make up a society. Thank you. Professor Karim Saad is a professor of archaeology at the University of Witwatersrand, and we're speaking about the city of Gwening, um, situated in the Highfelt area, a pre-colonial city. And, and Prof, let me ask you, was there an end of an era? In other words, was there sort of a great exodus, or, or, or what do you think happened there? Yes, indeed. End of an era is a very good way to put it. It was the end of a very successful and, and rich era, which, as the caller was mentioning, many, many cities spread over a large area. Uh, what happened is a series of, uh, you could call them civil wars, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, there are many different reasons behind it. Uh, climate change had something to do with it, famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a rise of uh, the Zulu kingdom, the Chaka Zulu kingdom in the south. There was the European colonial powers coming from the, from the south and the west. Uh, all of these created a lot of problems, and people were basically killing their neighbors and taking their food and cattle in order to survive themselves, and they were in turn being chased away by other people. Uh, there were some very big players. Uh, there was, for example, King Mzilikazi mm. from the Ndebele, Matabele, 
There were other people. There was Mantecchisi, a queen of, uh, well, there are some debates about exactly what the relationships were. But there were some very big, let's say, warlords fighting over this landscape. And what we read in the early travelers, it was missionaries were coming in to the landscape at the same time. This is in about 1820, 1823, about 200 years ago. Uh, they talked about burnt-out cities, uh, human skeletons lying all over the place. This would have been a terrible time to live. But, but it almost sounds to me like that happened and, and nobody came in to fully occupy. It's, mm. it, is, that, is that what it, could have happened? Well, uh, it's partially true and partially not true. Mm-hmm. Some areas were, were devastated and the people left. The refugees went away. And no one came in. Well, they, they did try to come back into some areas. Mm-hmm. In some areas, the, for example, right here, this area, Quenang, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mizilikazi, we think, came in 1823 and destroyed the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he moved his capital to near Pretoria. Mm-hmm. And because he was so worried about attacks from the south, from south of the Vol River. Mm. He cleared this landscape. He kicked out everybody, ah. killed everybody, and created a buffer zone that was patrolled by his soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they were under orders to kill anybody that they see. Uh, so the next thing that happened, so nobody could go back to Kuning at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing that happened was the European trekkers started arriving, and they got into conflict with Mizilikazi. They had guns, they had horses, they had uh, strategic advantage. And so Mizilikazi retreated further north. So this landscape, which had been, let's say, emptied out by Mizilikazi, fell into the lap of the trekkers. And they then essentially, uh, they had the right of conquest, let's say. And then they brought people back in to work the land, etc. And some of the original inhabitants obviously came back at the time. Pule is calling us from Secunda. Hi, Pule. Good afternoon, ma'am. You're speaking to Pule. Hi, Pule. Go, go ahead. Yes, ma'am. I just want to get a clarity from a professor with regard to the city itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, geographically, if you check the area, mm. it's mainly Basoto. When you check for anything mm. until Heidelberg, it's Basoto. Mm. And obviously, it's uh, a Zulu-speaking people. So my question is, based on their research, how did they conclude that it belong to Botswana, whereas Botswana are based in the northwest, Northern Cape, Bloemfontein, and far northwest, like Harangu until northwest. Uh, yeah. You, you've missed it, Pule, but, but we'll, re, we'll get a Professor to reiterate that. Uh, I suppose, Prof, going back to that movement of Botswana at that time. Mm. Indeed. I, I think one can elaborate a little bit more, and I'm, I'm not really the one to to say who was who. Yes. Uh, but uh, we call it Quenang because we know from several different sources that the people that lived there and built it were different branches of the great Bakwena nation, let's call it. Uh, now, Bakwena can be claimed by Basuki and by Botswana yeah. as well because mm. they live in both areas. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the, the origins of the uh, uh, Lesotho, if we go back to King Moshesh, he was himself a, a Mokwena. Mm. So now, do we want to say that the Bakwena who built Quenang were Basuitu or Botswana? Personally, I think at the time, they didn't use these terms, mm. Botswana or Basuitu. They were Bakwena, that was all. Uh, and so now, looking back, it's a debate, should we call them Basuitu, should we call them Botswana? 
And it's not for me to say that. Um, one could go either way, I suppose. Well put. Thanks for that, Prof. Let me go to some voice notes. All right, I'm going, I'm going to come back to those voice notes in a short while. I'm having some trouble there. But you can also call in on 011-714-2006. And uh, you can also send us a voice note on 0614-104-107. Prof, what, what do we know about the lifestyle of this community there? Mm. Uh, the, the, from, from early travelers' report of cities further west, Travelers, unfortunately, didn't reach Quenang before it was destroyed. But from their descriptions, we know that uh, the basis of the economy was cattle, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cattle was wealth. Everybody aspired to have a lot of cattle. The king owned practically all the cattle, but he could lend it out uh, to different individuals to buy their favor, to put them in debt, create political relationships, and so on. So everything really revolved along, around cattle in the men's domain, let's say. Uh, the women's domain was the farming uh, agriculture, and uh, that was a quite pretty rural lifestyle, uh, farming and herding. But in some areas, there was also uh, iron manufacture, manufacture of iron tools, copper tools, which they used for trading. Uh, some of the groups had connections with early Portuguese settlers in Mozambique. And through there, they had trading out ivory and receiving cloth and beads and things like that. So uh, the, the links were fairly extensive, but the lifestyle would have been fairly rural. Um, uh, if you went into Quenang um, at, at the time, for example, you would, it would, perhaps different parts of it would look to you like village life. It would be a very, very, very large village. And it was only around where the king lived, where his councillors lived, that you might get more of the impression of a government centre. Are there plans to excavate? Uh, at, at the moment, I'm in contact with um, uh, the, the Batswana Bakwena community here in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to convince them that archaeology is a good thing mm-hmm. and that they can find out a lot about their mm-hmm. forefathers and ancestors mm-hmm. by through excavation. Mm-hmm. But I also am very sensitive to the fact that to them, these ruins are the burial grounds of their ancestors and not the playthings of archaeologists, let's say. So until they are willing to join me in excavating them, I'm not going to start any. So we, we have a community that still goes to the grave sites there? Do we, do we have that community that actually has clustered itself and still recognizes the burial sites of their ancestors? Um, not Quinn specifically. The mm-hmm. community uh, has its oral history traditions, which concern more the area around uh, Cliff Reviersburg, Alberton, uh, further south Eichenhof. Uh, these areas very close to Johannesburg, which is not far from Quinn but they're oral histories and they don't visit any graves in Quinn because I think that's beyond memory. Mm-hmm. It's so long ago. Whereas they know of the specific graves in the Clip Reviersburg area. But according to information from anthropologists and um, historians, the area of Quenang would have been occupied by the ancestors of the same people. But I think the memory of that specific place has been lost. Let me go to some voice notes. Um, hi, Pimelo. Uh, Mutlatsi here in Centurion. 
Um, I'm just, I just want to follow up on a voice note that someone else sent, uh, see if you could answer that question for us about the linkages between um, the city of Gwening and other cities in Southern Africa, uh, like the, the person was saying, you know, Mapungubje, uh, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, um, you know, like, like uh, we obviously know there were, there were other cities in the area with possibly similar architecture with these stone walls uh, and these cities did trade with um, you know with with uh, Arabic people um, you know trading gold and ivory and all sorts of things so uh, just a bit of um, just to get some perspective from the prof on the linkages between uh, the different cities in southern Africa. Hmm. Prof, that question about some some other uh, stone wall structures that are known to be around uh, Southern Africa and other African countries. Yes, that's a that's a that's a very good point, very good question. Thank you very much. Uh, it's there are links in history in time. So, for example, if you think of Mapungubwe, was really the first town in Southern Africa about a thousand years ago, let's say. Uh, then the succeeding city or center of power was Great Zimbabwe. And that was, let's say, between 1200 and 1500 uh, AD, uh, so let's say 700, 800 to 500 years ago. Mm-hmm. So at that time, here in the High Falls, there was hardly uh, anybody farming around here. This, this landscape was very much uh, hunting and gathering Khoisan landscape. Mm. And at the time, when we look at the oral histories of today's different groups of Botswana and Basuti, they all claim to have come from the north, and there's pretty good evidence to suggest that they were in Zimbabwe, that they were in fact the subject of Great Zimbabwe at the time. Uh, now, for various reasons, they drifted southwards, eventually settled this area, the High Falls, around about, let's say, from 1600 AD onwards, 400 years ago onwards. And by that time, Great Zimbabwe had already decayed, and well, it was not a capital anymore. Uh, the capital had moved to Kami, then it was the Rosvies, other dynasties. But the, the architectural style suggests that there were connections between even Quenang and the Zimbabwean uh, politics. Uh, some very specific architecture can be linked back into that area. So historically, they're all linked. Uh, the connections to the East Coast, uh, to the Indian Ocean with the Arab traders, there was a lot of trade down the Limpopo from Mapungubwe, from Great Zimbabwe, from the Rosvi Empire, uh, later with the Portuguese. But the high flow was a little further away, so it wasn't, let's say, on the main highway of that trade. But I'm sure there were some connections that way, too. <laughs> to what extent are we able to tell the climate of the day by, mm. by some of the, 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 what they've left behind? Yes, indeed. In fact, the, the climate of that time is of great interest to uh, modern climate, climatologists. Mm. Uh, 300 years ago, it is said that that was the peak of a very cold period. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call it the Little Ice Age. Mm. And, and now, on average, it may have been only two or three degrees colder than today. But that would mean that, in fact, farming would be disrupted. Uh, life would be quite difficult for a farmer for lack of rain, etc., so these were not climatically very good times, but nonetheless, it was good enough to support these cities. I've got another voice note. Sorry? I've got another voice note coming through. Hi, Pumela. Thank you very much for the program about this, this city in Gauteng. 
May the professor uh, <clears throat> develop a map of Africa showing all these cities from Cape to Cairo, uh, pre-colonial, so that <clears throat> our children can understand uh, what Africa looked like before the coming of colonialism, slavery and apartheid. This is very important that if we are to to, if we are to really define who we are as Africans, thereby making uh, our children understand better uh, where Africa comes from and where Africa is heading. Thanks. Mike Tata. You've got a lot uh, on your plate, <laughs> Prof. Uh, they are, they're asking you to do this throughout the continent. Wow. Um, well, it's a, <laughs> go ahead. It's a, it's a, it's a very good point, if I, if I can just say something yes. in, in reply. Sure. It's really a pity that the school books uh, don't say much about the history of mm-hmm. Africa, the glorious days of Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pity because there is a lot to be said, and historians have been studying this for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the peak of it, let's say, the, the age of the big cities like Great Zimbabwe, Jene uh, Jeno, there's the Kingdom of Ghana, the Mali, uh, so many places. Uh, would be the medieval period, let's say. The, uh, and that's quite a lot is known about that, when Africa was essentially in contact with the world economy across the oceans and all that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it would be, I can certainly point out books that uh, explain these things, but this information, unfortunately, doesn't filter through into the school books, which it really should. It's a pity. Mm-hmm. What the technology you're currently using... To- to what extent, I mean, how far in detail can you go? What, what, what does it give you? What's mm. the biggest detail it can give you? Yeah, uh, the, the, the imagery that we're using has a resolution of about seven centimeters, so let's say the length of a finger. Uh, wow! So it's, it's very high resolution, and it can, let's say, see through the vegetation. It can <sighs> cut, out of the, cut the vegetation out virtually. So we can see these rooms very, very clearly. Wow. But in order to record the architectural detail, we have to go to the field and look at these, usually after a cell phone, mm-hmm. in order to find where were the doorways, you know, for example, where, uh, what particular structure are we... Because these views are from straight above. Mm. And you can't always see what the architectural details from you. Uh, uh, so it, it, it's high detail, but it requires more footwork. You spoke a little bit about also vegetation, and I imagine it has changed tremendously. What can you tell us about some of the stuff that we don't have anymore that maybe possibly existed then? Mm, it's, it's, in that area, it hasn't changed that much. Really? I mean, dinosaurs has changed a huge amount because of all the imported trees and all that. Mm. But uh, the high felt, the, the grass felt there, uh, there may be a bit more trees now than there were then. Mm-hmm. Because a city like that would have, you can imagine, consumed yeah. firewood quite quickly. Yeah. So it would have been more open grassland. Mm-hmm. But the grassland is still there. It may have a bit more trees in it. That's the only difference, really. Uh, and this grassland is absolutely perfect for grazing cattle. Mm-hmm. And the river that runs in front of the city, the Clip River, the Peter River, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of the best arable lands in this part of the world, in Gauteng. So these guys were sitting in a very, very optimal landscape. Mm-hmm. Scully is calling from Durban. Good afternoon, Scully. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to the professor there. Um, my my take is, man, I'm very interested. I've been a seaman. Um, I, I, I went to sea, 
but I'm just interested in how were the borders drawn up, sir? You know, from country to country, now that we refer South Africa, Botswana, Nigeria, and so on. In those days, were they there, the borders, or it, Africa was just open? Prof? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, I'm afraid these lines that you see on the map, the borders, these are all colonial inventions. Uh, and it's a, having these fixed frontiers is a very European idea that was imported to Africa. Uh, previously, borders would have been much more fluid, uh, negotiable. There weren't a line on the ground. Uh, people would have defined their territory by access to, let's say, a certain patch of river, a certain mountain, a hill, landscape features would have defined their center, and then the periphery of their kingdom would have been, let's say, negotiable. They could expand through warfare, they could contract, they could, uh, it wasn't a fixed uh, boundary. Mm-hmm. Uh, those boundaries came in with fences, with private property, and then, of course, the countries that had to divide themselves up and draw these lines, which means, you know, Botswana got separated from South Africa, but the Botswana in Botswana are originally related to all the Batswana on this side of the board mm. and separated by a, by a uh, imaginary line on the map. Mm. Uh, Prof, sometimes architecture is able to give us some clues and, and we may take it for granted over time, but to what extent do you think this, the, the actual physique and the, 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 the sculpt of the human, uh, that particular human that lived in the area has changed? From what we can say, there wouldn't have been much of a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, through various excavations in different places, uh, some graves have been excavated. And when the uh, anthropologists or the medical anatomists have looked at the remains, the skeletons, mm-hmm. they can see that they were, you know, much like the modern uh, Africans of the area now. Uh, same, more or less the same height, same build, and so on. So. Uh, the, so it would have been more or less the same same height as well. Um, the physique, not not much, not much no, difference. Okay. No, the, the difference would be in terms of clothing and uh, the outside features, but mm-hmm. the the body would have been the same. Hmm. Scully, you good with that? Thank you, thank you, ma'am. Thank you very much. I'm very curious about um, the the movement of uh, missionaries and, and when that happened, because we're dating this between the 1500s all the way possibly to the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And, and when the introduction of things like specific artifacts were introduced into these cities, whether it was a cross or whatever, if we actually get to see those kind of things. Mm, we do, we do indeed. Uh, now, when we say 1500s, at, at that time, Quening was not a city yet. Uh, there were people in that area, but not living in very large, dense agglomerates. Ah, okay. Uh, so that was the early days of it, let's say, the mm-hmm. nucleus of the city. And in that time, the, the architecture was a particular style, mm-hmm. relatively simple, but still stone walls. Okay. And then through time, it became more complex, more larger. So we can sort of date the different phases by the architectural changes as well, the fashion change. Yeah. And, and some of the architecture also points to links with other areas. Mm. Uh, we can think in terms of architectural innovations mm-hmm. that came into here. Uh, we don't know necessarily exactly when or why, but we can make the link across space. And, and, and so we were talking about the artifacts of, of what we get to see. Uh, what's the latest that we, we were able to see of, of something that may not necessarily be African? 
non-African... Maybe in, like crosses and stuff like that. Yeah. No, the, in the, in the, in, before the arrival of the Europeans, everything is local architecture. Yeah. Uh, there is some features, there are some features that link back to Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. There are some features that link back to the south. Uh, I'm not sure how far south, maybe to Nguni speakers, uh, Zulu, Kosa, possibly. Mm. Uh, but these are details that are meant to be worked out. Yeah. But the architecture is very typically African. Mm-hmm. It's only when the Europeans arrive that yeah. everything changes and people start to build rectangular straight lines, whereas, whereas before everything was round and very organic shapes. Hmm. You spoke about, and I'm going to use the word you use, it's your word, you said magical Magical. Mm-hmm. You said magical heaps, ash heaps. Mm-hmm. Why do you call it magical? Because you, well, we haven't ex- excavated. Yes, no, it's a, it's a poor choice of words, perhaps. But it, comes <laughs> from inter- it comes from interviews with uh, elders okay. of, the, of the Bakwena community here. Yes. Uh, we, we invited them to a workshop one day, and one of my students, the one who's working on the Ashes asked them a lot of questions. Yes. And some of their elders told us, I mean, I can't, can't say if it's magical, yes. but certainly the ash from these ash heaps is seen as being extremely potent, powerful um, medicine for everything, from headaches to curing up and can't even say exactly what, but many, many things. Mm. Uh, and, and a very good place, for example, to bury people in, mm. a good yeah. powerful place to, to lie and rest. So magical is a, is a <laughs> cheap word in a way. Uh, it doesn't express uh, the full richness of it. Is there is there reluctance? And I and I, I know you touched it on you touched on it a little bit to say that for some people you know there lies uh, some some other burial sites as well, so it's quite sensitive. But mm-hmm. is there interest enough interest? Is there reluctance to excavate? Mm, I haven't come across any uh, let's say any support for the idea okay. uh, of excavating. Uh, this is from the Bakwena community. Mm-hmm. There's also not much support from the landowners around mm-hmm. it uh, for excavating just yet. And in fact, you know, two or three of these uh, stone walls homesteads were excavated 30, 40 years ago and was never analyzed properly. So mm-hmm. I have another student who's going back through all the material that was dug and he is putting together a report. Once he's finished, we can decide, you know, does it make sense to go back and dig some more mm-hmm. where and precisely to answer what question? We don't want to just go and dig holes for the sake of digging holes. Mm. So we want to make a very, very specific intervention to go and dig in particular places to answer particular questions. And once we have that planned, uh, I'll try and see if I can convince uh, the landowners and the Bakwena community to allow us to do that. I'm very curious about what you're saying, specific questions. Is there a question that lingers for you? Yeah, for example, one of these uh, architectural features that uh, links back to Great Zimbabwe, in fact, and which is unique at Pune. It hadn't been recognized before, uh, and it would be quite interesting to dismantle one or more of them, a sample of them, to see, you know, what are they? Because they could be grave markers, they could be, I don't know what they are. Uh, and and perhaps taking some of them apart would help us answer that question. Of course, we put them back together again. Sure. But, uh, yeah, there, there are other questions like that. Linsui is calling from the Northwest. Hi, Linsui. Hello, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for calling. Hey, mm. No, Prof, are you doing well? Very well, thank you very much. 
Thank you. Postman, I have one specific question here. I think perhaps you can uh, unpack it so that there can be more clued up on it. Is there any relationship between uh, the Nama people and the Botswana? Mm -hmm. Since in most cases they settle or cohabit in the same area which is along the Kalahari, which is mainly Kalahari. Mm -hmm. And if you look into the traditional attire, we, we wear the same stuff. I think this question also relates to what it has been discovered in Quilling City because if you look into their movement, mm -hmm. if if there is any relationship, then it will basically unpack so so many issues relating to whether we belong together or it just mm -hmm. happened that we share different uh, or the same values. And so, thanks for that, Lindsay. Prof. Yes, very very interesting question. Let me uh, generalize that a little bit more and say not only specifically Nama, but Khoisan in general. This would now include the Nama, the Khoikhoi, various groups of San, uh, many different language groups uh, there. And in the Kalahari, in the West, in the Northern Province, uh, Northern Cape Province, etc. Uh, so yes, there are very clear rela relationships between all of these people and the Botswana, in the Kalahari, in Botswana, coming back further this way as well. It, it's pretty clear, I think, that throughout their history, these people have mingled and intermarried. Uh, there's even oral history, specific oral histories about, let's say, uh, succession disputes that arouse out of the fact that uh, the mother of the supposed king-to-be was a Khoisan woman and not acceptable to some members of the community. So there are many references to this kind of intermarriages, uh, and, and as you rightly mentioned, the clothing is very similar. Uh, if you go to Botswana these days uh, and you see one of the traditional dances, uh, you can see that the, the rattles on the legs, the skin clothing, it's all very reminiscent of Khoisan populations from the Kalahari. There's obviously been a long history of linkages there. Uh, as I said in the past, the boundaries were not hard and fast, and these cities were really very cosmopolitan places. So you could very well have groups of Khoisan people coming to visit to trade their, let's say, skins and tusks and uh, various other things that they procured. And, and there would have been open connection between many of these people. Professor Saad, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, really appreciate it. Professor Karim Saad, <laughs> Professor of Archaeology at the University of Wits. Uh, that brings us to 2 o'clock. Let's go to Uzila Saga for the latest in SABC News.